Well, a very good morning to everybody. We're, uh, we're back in the uh, letter to the Colossians, so if you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians and chapter 3. I must say uh, it was actually very good timing that Marty took up what he did last week with uh, the looking at the two very different temptations uh, that we are presented with in the scriptures, the temptation obviously of Adam and Eve there in the garden and then the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ because what he brought to us really cuts to the, the very core of what Paul now deals with in the Colossians uh, in chapter 3 here. And let's just read uh, firstly the portion of scripture together to uh, just get our bearings and uh, to recall where we, uh, where we left off from last time. So Colossians chapter 3. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek or Jew circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all in all. Just a brief prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the free availability of your word in the country in which we live in. Father, we thank you that we can study it now together and we pray that the Holy Spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds. Father, may we truly be renewed after the image of our Creator. Lord, this is our blessing that we enjoy now as we look into the Scriptures. And Father, we pray that you would be our portion as we look again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I must say I feel like I've uh, got to know the Apostle Paul a lot better in studying uh, this letter. It's, it's great to see uh, his personality uh, throughout and, and to continue to remind ourselves that this was a letter written by a man to a group of very, very new believers in the Lord. And I've also gotten to know the, the Colossians you know, to, to see their struggles, to, to see the, the things that they were facing uh, to hear about some of the uh, challenges, but also some of the encouragements that Epaphras had brought to Paul's ears, for Paul had never met them. 
And I think most of all, the, the thing I've, I've taken away from this letter so far, where we've got to, and of course now we, we're dealing with the very practical part of the book, as Paul always likes to do. He brings the doctrine to bear upon the readers, and then he gets into the, the practicalities of how it is that we are to apply those doctrines, those teachings that we've been looking at. And of course, the primary teaching that he has brought to us has been that our hope, our treasure and our life are all found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, you remember that beautiful portrait that he paints in chapter 1, the portrait of the preeminent Christ, of who he is, of what he has done. And so now he's bringing to bear those, those three things and he's reminding us that now we have been raised with this Jesus, the one who now sits in heaven, he is our very life. He is the one in whom our life is hidden with Christ in God. There is no more secure place for the believer. And this is where we find ourselves today. And you recall that the reason why Paul's doing this is because, you know, these people that were coming into the church, and the church was perhaps only a couple of years old, a very, very new church, and it was really on the the wild west of the Roman frontier, of the Roman Empire. It was one of those last trading outposts as it made it, as the roads made their way out into Asia. And in just a few short years after this letter was, was written, the, the town was hit by a, an awful earthquake and the city was, was basically destroyed, never to be rebuilt. So we have this little group of believers, very new to the faith, and of all the things that Paul could write to them, He just wants to tell them about the Lord that they've come to put their faith in. He wants to declare Christ to them. He wants to show them the riches and the glories of Christ. And really, you know, in summary, it's a a letter of encouragement for them to stay on target, to stay on target, to keep your eyes fixed on him. And now as we get to this very practical part of the book, His tactic doesn't change. His message doesn't change. But now he tells them, he gives them the the underlying reason of why they can have this victory in Christ, why they don't need to add any of those things that the false teachers have been telling them that they need to add, the worldly wisdom that the false teachers have brought in, the the aesthetics and the rituals the false religions that the false teachers were trying to bring in, causing these young believers to stumble. No, he's saying that because you now are in Christ and because Christ is in you, you, your identity, your very person, your life is hidden in Christ. And then he goes on to say that because of this, because your identity is in Christ, No one can take that from you. And now I'm going to say to you that because of that, that is going to be your primary incentive and primary motivation to gain the victory over sin. And I think in the churches, I think this this has been lost in a lot of churches, in a lot of teaching, because the, the Christian's identity in Christ, the fact that you are now complete in him, is not reinforced. It is not clearly taught. 
But this is exactly what Paul does in this very short letter. Okay, he's wanting us to understand that that identity is our main motivation. You know, we've been, remember, we've been actually baptized into Christ. We've been baptized into his death. We've been raised. And in that, in that raising, in that resurrection with Christ, that new life that we've been given, you know, this is, this is where we find ourselves now, on this solid ground of the salvation that Christ has secured. And Paul is saying that if you understand these things, if you understand your identity in Christ, how can we possibly add anything to it? It just it makes no sense why you would want to add anything to what Christ has done. Seeking those things which are above. The underlying principle of life, isn't it? Taught by our Lord Jesus. It's the underlying principle. You know, the, the, the where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we're, we're told to look for our treasure. And what is our treasure? Our treasure is Christ. And where is he? He is in heaven right now, seated at the very right hand of God. And we looked briefly last time at those, those four foundational re, uh, realities found in verses 1 to 4. And then we'll get into the rest of the passage. The four foundational realities, which were, which were these. Number one, Christ is at God's right hand. Number two, death has been defeated. For the Christian, we do not have to face death. It's behind us. The final separation of man from God will not happen to the Christian. The reality of Christ's appearing and we thought about the, the tremendous motivation that that gives us as we look forward to that day when we will see him face to face, revealed in his glory, coming for his church. And all these things right now, they're hidden, aren't they? They're hidden, but they're soon to be revealed. Christ, who is our hope, Christ, who is our treasure, Christ, who is our life. It is Jesus, 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 all through. And this is what the apostle wants us to set our minds on. Some translations use the word affection. It's it's not an accurate translation because he is wanting us to fix our mind on these things. It is to be our bent our leaning to be constantly focused and turned upon our Lord, like the, the flower in a field as the sun is rising, that the flower's natural inclination is to bend towards the sun, that life-giving sun that comes down and causes that blossom to grow. So it is for the Christian. We are to be continually towards our Lord, just as he is continually towards his people. You know, it is the way, isn't it, that God created us as intelligent beings? You know, we are, we are the only being in creation that looks up, that has the ability to look up, and man has, man has defiled that ability for, since the dawn of time, and they have, they have looked up and they have worshipped the stars, or they have looked up and worshipped other made-up deities. But man, in, in his heart, he has this intrinsic desire to look up but we've been revealed, we've been shown who the true and living God is and who his Christ is. And so now we know where the focus and where our attention is. 
Animals can't do it. You know, I was just throwing the ball around with the dog the other day and I was just surprised by the fact that every time I threw the ball, if it wasn't at his eye level, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't raise his head. He couldn't, he couldn't even follow a ball in the sky. Animals can't. It's, it's, a, it's a human thing that we are, have been given this ability to look up. We've been given this ability to worship. So Paul says, put aside earthly wisdom, put aside earthly religion, earthly experiences, earthly ascetics, put it all aside and look up. Okay, they were the four warnings that we had in, in, in chapter 2, if you recall. You know, he is now the one that provides the power and the strength through the Spirit for us to live this new life, for us to live in the new man, the new creation, the, the regenerated soul that he has given us. And because our life is, is hid with Christ, that, that word again comes up, hidden. You know, our hope is hidden, in, hidden in Jesus Christ, hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now our life is hidden, again, that word. This mystery, this secret, this unknowable secret to the world, but yet has been revealed to us through, through his son. Totally unknowable, which is why the world is so full of um, scorn and, and mockery, because they don't know it. They don't have a, a natural inclination to, to seek after it. And so at the end of uh, where we got to, it's, uh, it, you know, and, and being where we've been in the, in the book so far, it's no wonder that the John Newton, you know, he, he penned, he, after a, a reading of Colossians one night, he actually wrote a, a poem and a, a, a hymn, Rejoice, Believer in the Lord. Some of you may know it. Uh, the words are just a beautiful representation of, of where we've been. And, and it says, Rejoice, Believer in the Lord, who makes your cause his own, the hope that's built upon his word shall ne'er be overthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die, for Jesus, strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees him always near, a guide, a glory, sure defence, then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall in him triumph too. Brothers and sisters, what a joy it is that we can look above, that we can look and see the one standing there, the one who made an end to all our sin, the one who is soon coming, the one who will soon be revealed that great and glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the light of all of that, in light of all of that, Paul then exhorts these believers in verse 5 to put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. These old, the old man and the things that he carried around, sexual immorality, the outward sin, okay, impurity, the uncleanness and filthiness that went with the old life, lust, 
That is the the passion of sin within the body. Evil desire. That is the sins of the mind. And you see what Paul's doing here. He's, He's starting on the outside and he's getting deeper and deeper into the core problem of man's sin. And finally, he finishes there with greed, which is idolatry. It's like he's, you know, he's peeling off the layers of an onion and he gets to the real root of it, or the root of all of this other stuff, this horrible list that's gone before, greed, which is idolatry. You know, in John's letter, he, he summarizes it this way slightly differently, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things that are inside the old nature that we are told to mortify to put to death. You know, William Barclay, the Puritan, wrote this. Evil, evil root from which, sorry, greed is the evil root from which all other sins spring from. It is a sin with a very wide range. And that is because at its heart, at greed's heart, its covetous heart, it desires something that it, that it does not possess and primarily it desires something in the place of God at its core. And so this is the, the foundational issue that Paul wants to deal with here in this section, the foundational issue of the mortification of sin but he's already given us the the incentive, the power that we need in order to mortify sin, and that is our identity in Christ. You know, the, the Westminster Confession actually calls this, in the life of the believer, the irreconcilable warfare. It talks about the irreconcilable warfare of the old and the new nature of having been the old nature having been defeated, the reign of the old nature having been destroyed, but yet that old nature, it still remains. And that's why, you know, it's been said for a long time, hasn't it, that it no longer, that the sinful nature no longer reigns, the flesh no longer reigns, but it remains. And we know but we're no longer slaves. We're no longer slaves to this sin. In fact, quite the contrary, we've been given the power to mortify it, to kill it. And it is a daily labour for the Christian. It's a daily labour. In fact, it should be our primary labour before we even seek to ask the question of God, what can I do for you, Lord? How can I serve you, Lord? The mortification of sin in the life of the believer should be the very first and foremost labour that we engage in. You know, it's like Bunyan in his lesser-known book, Holy War. When you recall the city of Mansoul that is, is besieged by the enemies within, and then finally those enemies are defeated, and they're all cast out of the city. But they don't leave the city alone, do they? No, they set up camp. You know, they send in skirmishes from time to time. They, they draw along various weapons and then later on in the book they draw along all these 
You know, it's like these sort of special forces of evil that encamp man's soul. You know, but we're safe now. We're inside the fortress. We're waiting for the appearing of our Emmanuel. We're waiting for the Prince of Peace to come and finally liberate, as Bunyan puts it. But their attack throughout the story, throughout the allegory, is relentless. It doesn't cease. And it's daily. They're up to something, something new to try and cause man's soul to fall. And it's not until that final chapter when the Prince of Peace appears and he puts all of his enemies under his feet and he finally destroys all of sin and all of the enemies of the Lord. Owen, when he wrote his book on the mortification of sin, you know, he wrote it to his Sunday school class, a group of teenage boys. And, you know, it's pretty tough going. When you read that book, uh, you, you, you can almost not even imagine a, a young boy being able to read the language in which he uses to to describe the process of the mortification of sin in the life of the believer. But, look, I just commend it to you because it's, it's so helpful, it's so instructive. The abridged version is perfectly okay. It's, it's a great book. And in that book, Owen writes this, that Christ, by his death, destroyed the works of the devil, procuring the spirit for us, and hath so killed sin as to its reign in believers that it shall not obtain its end or its dominion. It's a great summary of what Christ has done. The Lord Jesus Christ came, the Son of Man came, why? To destroy the works of the devil. That is why he came. You know, it's like we're living in that period of time. Remember in World War II, you know, D-Day, D-Day, 6th of June, 1944, Allied forces land at Normandy. And did you know the war didn't end for another 13 months after D-Day? So V-Day was, was there, you know, the following year, May 8th. But the war raged on, didn't it, in Europe? Skirmishes followed in various places, battles raged, and in the Pacific it was even later. And it's like that's where we're living now in the life of the Christian. We're living in between when victory has been secured, there at the, at the resurrection, at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, his work is done, his cross work is done, victory is assured. And now we look up and see him there who has, who has made an end of all of our sin, we look up and see an ascended Christ whom our life is now hidden in. But we're living in this part of a history and a part in our life where there's still these battles to be fought. There's still these fights to be had where the war is still raging. But victory is assured. You know, in the, uh, in the African... Uh, early days of the African missions, um, the very first, uh, particularly the Dutch missionaries, they went into Africa to preach the gospel and they, they saw tremendous fruit among the African people. 
and the gospel was being preached. And but one of the things that they noticed is that they that the young converts had a tendency to go back or to become very anxious and fearful of particularly the black magic and the witch doctors, and they would fall back into the old way very quickly. And the, the Dutch missionaries, they, um, they actually went. They found that their Bible studies in the Colossian epistle, they found real fruit coming from this as a result of teaching these very, very new converts first principles of what Colossians teach. And one of them wrote a letter back to their, uh, their mission board, and, and he says this, the inculcation of the new Christian to the deepest principles of union with Christ has seen lasting changes and victory over sin and darkness. By taking the converts as promptly and as explicitly as possible through the things which are above. I thought, what a great, what a great outcome. You know, these missionaries who are there, they're preaching the gospel faithfully in, a, in terribly trying circumstances. And they get to this letter and they see this tremendous fruit. Why? Because this is such an important doctrine for us to grasp, to see that our identity is in Christ, our completeness is in Christ, and therefore that is our primary motivation to stay on target, to have the victory over sin. But it's a daily and it's a constant battle. And of course, we're not talking about external. We're not talking about just mere things, uh, bad habits or whatever it might be. No, we're talking about the, the internal process of putting to death sinful thoughts before they even have a chance. Again, Owen says that you know if this is not something of the Spirit, he's talking about the context of the Holy Spirit being the power, the thing that empowers us to do this. Owen says, The mortification through self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. So what he's saying there is that if you just try and do it all yourself and you try and use you know, self-conjured up means, you're just going to find yourself in the same position, just in a slightly different, a, doing a slightly different thing. You're not going to be actually killing the indwelling sin. So it's a refusal, isn't it? It's a refusal to allow our eyes to wander, our mind to contemplate, our heart to deviate. From the course, we're to put to death today whatever belongs to that old man, whatever belongs to that earthly nature, and to not just leave the the vacuum, you know, to to then start to look at Christ, to put on Christ. It's a constant endeavor. It's a constant, constant battle. And you know, when people do sin, it's really the only reason they're they're doing it is because. They're, they're desiring something rather than God. And they're desire, desiring something rather than what God desires. And all sin is ultimately founded in unbelief. All sin is founded in, in a secret unbelief, a secret atheism, if you like. 
that we're putting something in the place of God. Stephen Charnock, he writes that we deny the sovereignty when we violate his laws. Every sin invades the rights of God and strips him of one or other of his perfections. Every sin is a kind of a cursing of God in the heart and aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, of course, but virtually. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. That is, that is sin at its heart. Adam and Eve, that's exactly what they did in the garden. That they exchanged the truth that they knew about God for the lie that they heard from the serpent. They listened to Satan. They followed after their own pride, their own covetousness. You will be like God's. And they listened and they fell. But getting back to greed, what is the what is the specifics here that he deals with? The evil root from which all other sins spring from, as Barclay put it. Now, the antidote to greed, the antidote to covetousness, is contentment. Is contentment, is to being able to rest in what God has given us. Being able to rest in that. And just like that is the antidote to greed, the antidote to pride then is humility. And these two things, if if we could rest and be content more fully in what Christ has provided, if we could put on humility, you know, and this is what it means, isn't it? This is where it really, you know, the rubber hits the road. You know, to put on the active obedience of the Christian to put on these things. This is what it means to present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. You know, Paul really is. He is attacking the root cause here. He lays the axe at the root cause of all sin. And, you know, when contentment replaces that covetous thought, you know, it, it cannot give rise to the, to the process of greed and everything else that comes after it. Cut it off at its root, at its cause. We must move on. In verse 6, why? Because of these, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. You know, the wrath of God, it, it is probably the, the single biggest thing that, that mankind derides and scorns. You know, they, they make a joke of it. They, they mock it openly. Um, you know, how many times have you, have you heard just even in conversation, oh, well, I don't want to be struck by lightning, you know, or some sort of throwaway comment like that. No, but what we're talking about here is, is, is God's holy and righteous hatred of sin. And the effect of that and what is going to happen upon this world for all of those who are disobedient. You know, one of the most um, famous poems, would you believe, that is read at university, valedictory speeches and graduation services, Nelson Mandela even read this poem. Some of you may have heard it, Invictus. And I won't 
we won't waste our time with reading the whole thing, but you'll you'll get the you'll see why this resonates so much in the world. You know, this is this is a man who who actually lived a really miserable life. William Ernest Henley. And he starts off his poem by saying, you know, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods, small g, gods, plural, gods may be for my unconquerable soul. William goes on to write in his last verse, it matters not how straight the gate, a direct reference to the gospel, it matters not how straight the gate, or how charged the punishments, the scroll, talking about Revelation, this man knew his Bible. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that thinking, it summarizes the thinking of this world. And that is why it resonates so well with this world. And that is why it is read at those university graduation ceremonies. Oh, yes, you're the captain of your soul, graduates. Go out into the world. Change it for the good. Do whatever it is that you want to do that you find you in. You know, and this is, this is the summary, isn't it? Man can parade their sin before God. They can, they can pen even these words, holding up their fist to God, teaching Pretending, that's what they're doing. They're pretending that there is no such thing as the wrath of God, as God's anger kindled against sinners. And yet there is coming a day. The promise of his soon appearing is sure. The promise of his wrath against unbelief and disobedience is sure and certain. And those two things alone, aren't they? They they should be enough that we can that we can just re- rejoice in and thank God for that that He has reached out and saved us. And there's one more thing that Paul reminds us of here. He says, "Your own remembrance, you know, you who once walked in these things, we don't want to return to that old life. We don't want to turn and, and go back to the way that we, you who once walked in these things and were living in them." No, this, this is a reminder to look back, not at what we left behind, but to know and remember what it was like and to never want to go back there and to never want to go back to, those, to that awful place of slavery to sin. Just turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul saw these two letters um, are just so complementary. Ephesians and Colossians. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler and the power of the air and the spirit that now working that is now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and whereby nature, by nature, children under wrath, as others also were, but God, praise God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us 
made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Charles Spurgeon says, Why would anyone who has been made rich want to return to the slums and live in poverty? Unless they have never been made rich in the first place. A child, why play with the fire that so scorched you in the past? Why place your hand upon the adder's nest? Did sin ever yield thee real pleasure? Did thou find solid satisfaction in it? Of course not. Nay, be not snared a second time by that old fowler. Rather be free, and the remembrance of thine ancient bondage forbid thee to enter that net again. He's got such a great way of words, doesn't he? Now, why would anyone want to return to their old life? Verse 8. But now, putting away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy communication out of your mouth. You know, the first list, we could say that it was a list of perverted desire and greed. And here we have another list straight away, straight after. And, you know, we could just summarise it like this. These sins of wicked hatred. And they've all got something to do, haven't they, with the mouth. How, how destructive evil speech can be. And, you know, it's one of the, uh, the key characteristics of Satan, the, one of the things that he is renowned for is the fact that he uses words in a deceptive way. He is called, you know, the liar, the father of lies, and this, dear friends, I believe is one of the main reasons Paul names this here is because he wants to distinguish very early in the Christian's life what makes us different in a very, very practical but very powerful way that the Christian is somebody who has control of their mouth, who does not lie, whose yes is yes, whose no is no whether it's in business or the home, whether it's in public life, private life, any aspect of life, this was what sets the Christian apart. You know, truth now, truth, you know, Marty uses truth has, has stumbled in the public square. You know, and that is one of ACL's main tenets. To, to get truth into the public square. And I'm just alarmed if I just like look back over even the last five years and see the way in which truth now, it, it almost has no meaning, no meaning at all. In, whether it's from news outlets, whether it's from politicians, you, you cannot even rely on the source of almost anything you read. In the media, there is only a very, very small group of what you could say are trustworthy editorials that are really on the fringes 
that aren't resourced very well because truth just does not sell. And this is one of the things that really should distinguish us in our lives is the fact that we are people of the truth. And finally, in verse 10 and 11, the Apostle writes, uh, it's just so amazing to think that he's never met these people because he he writes as though he he does know them and we can only uh, assume that that is because of the, the testimony that Epaphras has given him because he writes as if, you know, these, these ones, these dear ones to him, and he has a genuine heart for them. You know, the fact that, you know, he knows that they've put on, at the end of verse 9, you've put on the new self, and you're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. This is happening. These things are already happening. Be encouraged that this is happening. You know, this isn't something that, uh, that they have to strive for because these dear ones are in Christ. They're all, they've already been given the new man. Now they just have to work that out in their own life each day through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how can we, in, in summary, how can we be victorious over our struggle for sin? Number one, we, we remember who we are in Christ. We remember who we belong to. We remember where our identity lies. That is, that is the chief means of grace that he gives us. And then we can go about the, the task, can't we, the task of putting to death the sin every day, starving it. You know, don't, don't feed the anger or the resentment or the bitterness. Don't feed it. Don't cater to, to lust or evil thoughts. Drown covetousness and greed with humility and contentment. And continue, continue in these things through the graces that God has provided to us, through his word, through prayer, through the gathering together as believers, coming together to listen to the word, to worship him, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, showing that humility. You know, he, he gives a similar exhortation to, at the end of Philippians, to, and in Philippians 4 8, where he writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Think upon these things and then do, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. You know, we don't create a vacuum. We don't cast off the old man. We don't try to mortify sin in our lives without replacing something, without putting something back, something that is pure and good and holy. And that is why it is just such such a critical and important thing to realize that we have one seated at the right hand of God, 
that has provided for our every need, that he is the treasure in which our heart longs for. Now, just in closing, on verse 11, you'll see what Paul does here, is he goes right back, okay, and he starts off with verse 11, in Christ, in Christ. In other words, Mr. Greek, Mr. Jew, if you're circumcision, if you're uncircumcision, if you're a barbarian, remember these guys are in the Wild West there in the Roman Empire. They had all sorts of people coming into town. This was a really eclectic group of believers. Whether you're a barbarian, whether you're a Scythian, look up the Scythians later on. That makes you shudder what these people were like, what they were renowned for. Whether you're a slave or free, okay, but Christ is all and in all. You see, he takes all those labels. He says it doesn't matter about any of that. Puts them aside, puts the labels aside. You are in Christ. That is your identity. That is what is important because Christ is all and in all. Don't worry about the labels. Put the labels aside because they'll have no meaning and no bearing in a coming day because you were all in Christ. And that's how he, he finishes the section, which is an appropriate place for us to finish as well.